Hi everyone, this is Saya and you're listening to the Hearsay Podcast. It's been a little while between podcasts. I've been super busy working on projects, which unfortunately hasn't left much time for recording and editing these. Um, one thing I have been doing, I've been working on another podcast, doing music and sound design and editing and mixing and all kinds of time-consuming stuff, uh, which has been super fun. Uh, the podcast is called Oh My Dog, if you want to check it out. Um, it's my friend Michelle's creation, a beautiful podcast about the bonds between humans and dogs. So if you love dogs, like I do, uh, check it out. Um, it's everywhere that you listen to podcasts. My amazing guest today is Jack Ladder, or Tim Rogers, as some of you may know him as, uh, not that one. Tim has been making music a long time. I'm a fan of his work. He has the most incredible voice and aesthetic. Um, I'm super looking forward to hearing what he comes up with next, especially if it involves him singing over vintage keyboards, um, which is something we discuss a bit in this chat. Uh, Tim's strange show story was illustrated by South Australian artist, illustrator Leith O'Malley. You can check out more of Leith's incredible stuff on his website at leithomalley.com or his Instagram at leithomalley. So it's L-E-I-T-H-O-M-A-L-L-E-Y. Uh, enjoy the sweet, sweet baritone of this interview. Hearsay podcast number 38, Jack Ladder. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. I feel very happy to be talking to you over the phone and I'm, I'm imagining you're somewhere beautiful and mountainous. I'm in my mountain cabin in my kennel off the side <laughs> of the house. Um, Is that where your studio, do you have a studio in a little side yeah. bit? Yeah, it's, it was the woodshed when we got the house and then we put a floor in it and put some walls um in but it's still like got a, a, a big uh uh stable door on the front that's not really insulated so it does get very cold yeah um, but i just have like a piano in here that um gets pissed off with the temperature changes <laughs> i bet <laughs> <laughs> what else um, is in there um i have a uh some drum machines and mm -hmm. uh you know just equipment I have books holding my speakers up. I've got bricks holding mine up. <laughs> I've quite a good book collection holding the speakers up. Um, what um what's what's one of the books? There's a Captain Beefheart biography <laughs> and um uh Ava Gardner biography. <laughs> yeah, right. That is um, quite sturdy sounding. Yeah. There's some a few little books. There's a, a small book called Chinese Dinner Party. Uh and there is an um do humankind's best days lie ahead, which was a oh. speech, uh, uh, like a talk. That sounds heavy. Yeah. In both both senses. What kind of drum machines have you got there? Just some really... Uh, I have a, a rhythm ace that was my first drum machine that we um, took from a, a rental house in Byron. And I... Um, you stole it from a rental house? <laughs> yeah. I'm not proud, but I'm happy with the decision. Yeah, it worked um, out well. 
yeah i mean it became it was the it was the basis for my life change i am um, i recently i was in new york last month and i w- wanted to buy some like cool new york sneakers and i went into a shop and they had um tr808 sneakers oh wow and I, I bought two pairs <laughs> who makes tr808 um, sneakers roland makes puma. puma well i mean it's a, a puma roland collab and does it have um ox out it <laughs> i wish it did but I actually, I also kind of wish that it had, like, it could have, like, a little bass drum sound when you walked. Yeah. But that, I, I feel like that would get old pretty quick. There could be, like, a new type of tap shoe that when you yeah. dance in a particular way, it makes the sounds of the TR-808. Yeah. Someone should be working on that. That's, that's a gold mine. That's a really good idea. Imagine how annoying <laughs> the world would sound. <laughs> I actually think it might be cool. Like only if maybe you'd have to pass a test to wear it. Like you'd have to have some kind of rhythmic license. You'd have to have a very, someone doing the the hi-hat patterns. Very (laughs) light gait. (laughs) Like 16th. Yeah. You'd have to, yeah, you'd have to be like doing um, flash dance moves. (laughs) Yeah, serious (laughs) training for that. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, um. Let's talk about you, though. Uh, how you started <laughs> making music. What were you listening to when you first started thinking maybe you might want to do that kind of thing? I really liked, um, as a kid, I liked the, the, the decorayad with the shampoo <laughs> and the hair. <laughs> that was really catchy. That, yeah. that was a really good song. Yeah. Um, I really liked quite annoying songs. I had a... Um, in first grade, maybe there was a, a guy in Newport who had a um, a music studio to teach kids called Rock Studios R O C. He was like a um, thick set man with a um, black kind of perm, and he used to come to the school and I think you know convince all the mothers to buy their kids key- keyboards and stuff. And I got a little keyboard and it had, um, I think Wham must have done a deal with Casio at a certain point because a lot of different Casio keyboards I've played over the years have different Wham songs as the demo function. Really? Um, <laughs> but I really liked Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Yeah. Um, and that w- and I, I played that inc- incessantly on the um, demo keyboard and would change the sounds around. And I feel like I'm still doing that. Like I just, <laughs> you know. In Not much has changed since then. Yeah, like I'm using a synth and I, I play stuff in and then I just fiddle around with the, the preset <laughs> sounds on the, on the in Pro Tools or whatever. That's um, a great lineage from Wham to <laughs> Jack Ladder. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, things got weird in between there. Um, what was your first band? Uh, I was in the Avalon Primary School band. Did you have a name? Was that it? Oh, actually, we did start a stage band off the side of it, um, and it was called Segway. (laughs) Um, We used to play, (laughs) like, at retirement villages, uh, and we'd play, like, uh, I remember the the conductor of the band was a very progressive man uh, named Michael Lonsdale, and his partner was a sax um, tutor, Honk. And we we used to <laughs> do like theme television theme songs predominantly, but sometimes hits of the day 
uh, like uh, CNC Music Factory. Oh, um, yeah. What's that song called? Um, <laughs> oh, I, I can see the dun, video clip with dun, the dun, silhouettes dun, dancing. Dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we used to play that at Retirement Villages. How did that go down? And, and, and BG's uh, Tragedy was a big oh. hit in the nursing homes. Were you singing? No singing. It was purely instrumental. <laughs> <laughs> did you do the... How did you do the tragedy? I think it was, was that, it was the horn, that was the horn section. <laughs> it was like a stage band. It wasn't like a cool rock oh, band I love or anything. It. Segway, the stage band. I kind of tried to put bands together. I got my friends together and we did a... We did a version of Beastie Boys' Fight for Your Right to Party in the School Great. Talent Quest. Um, other forays in the School Talent Quest, I sang Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Um, a cappella. I in hope a you won. Gown. No, I lost <laughs> to... Um, I, got, I made the final, but I lost to this other kid called Blake Rogers. I believe he did um, the Beatles yesterday. Uh, so um, it's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, and some other girl did like a jazz ballet routine to Deep Forest. And um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I came fourth in the this final. This sounds really, <laughs> sounds like a tough, tough competition. Yeah. <laughs> Feels like I've never got over it. You know what? I When I was in school, I didn't get the music prize, even though yeah. I'd got consistently the best grades in music. Oh. And then the last term this guy swooped in and got it um and i've never gotten over it either oh. <laughs> what what so yeah. what other instruments do you play i just play guitar and keyboards okay. but this the the class was um like performance and also music tech so we did a lot of like recording other things and you know learning how to do pro tools sessions and stuff which was oh, okay. was really good to learn in school yeah, that's great. I also played drums in the school band. That's why I should oh, did tell you, you that. Yeah, I wasn't playing guitar or anything. Do you still play drums now? Uh, pretty badly, but I can keep time. That's important. I can play like a some some interesting beats as long as I don't have to do a fill. Terrible at yeah. drum fills. Same. So going forward to when you started your Jack Ladder project... Um, you and you've got heaps of albums now. I think you've you've got five or six albums now. I have five studio albums. I feel like you've always had like an idea of what this project is, but it's developed in a really cool way. Was that always the plan to start uh, the way that you did? No, I think you know I was probably uh, 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 um, affected by what was going on at the time. Um, I remember I had an instrumental band. I didn't like songs so much. I liked um, jazz and, you know, the, um, and then coming out of that, like the, uh, uh, like bands like Tortoise and um, Godspeed You Black Emperor and, and those kind of ambitious um, instrumental bands. Yeah, yeah. And then... I think at the same time, maybe there was a, like, it feels so silly um, now, but, like, when Nick Drake became, like, a, like, started becoming really popular again, and it was probably because yeah. he was on a car ad or something. 
Yeah. You know? (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, it feels like, oh, you've discovered this this lost artist. Yeah. Um, But he was just having another moment. And... um, and I just so I just fell in love with that um, kind of thing because I, I guess I, I I understood the tonality of it and and I was probably like nineteen or twenty and emotionally very uh, in a strange place and I just I just hooked straight into that and and then there was other stuff like um, Will Oldham and Bill Callahan that Drag City thing and and um, Dave Paho was really big yeah, for right. me and he had a record that was called live from a shark cage um and my brother had it and we just listened to it all the time and while he tried to teach me how to play backgammon um <laughs> of which I, I still can't play very well um <laughs> but i i loved just listening to that record so all of that stuff is like pretty morose did you is that <laughs> were you do you feel like that stuff was making you feel better about all of your feelings as a 19 year old? Uh I I think it's just what I connected to. I Yeah. I was always pretty disconnected maybe and always in my own world. I didn't really um I never felt like I had a subculture or anything. Like I remember, you know, there was like I mean the, the school I went to there was probably only a few really hip kids and and uh, um i had a friend and and she had like you know she was into bell and sebastian and she was into like pretty hip music um and you know there was a couple of kids that had like sonic youth scrawled on the on their backpacks and stuff but <laughs> for the most part <laughs> it was um pretty straight situation and um yeah. i i was just l- l- in my own world of you know, I was into like Miles Davis and Coltrane, and and thought that I was like serious jazz head, but wow. I, I didn't really know anything. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> did you ever want to study jazz? Yeah, I, I did want to study jazz, but I only really knew how to play the electric bass, which is probably the least cool jazz instrument, and um, <laughs> really heavy leaning and into jazz fusion stuff. And I, I went to some pretty dark places. <laughs> um, looking back um and, uh, and uh, atrocious music things and i'm glad that i went there really early because it, it gave me no ambition um to try and push things in a in a really disgusting technical way i sort of yeah, just yeah. lost all interest in that um, so then what were you what was your turning point to to start that first record did you have uh, like a certain direction in mind I remember I, I, I'd never really, um, I had a guitar, which is still the guitar that I have now, that I bought from a friend of my brother's that found it at the tip, and he sold it to me. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a, um, you know, a, a, it was a, it's a Squire, and I got a, a little practice amp with it. I, I gave him 150 bucks, and, um, and that's kind of the guitar that I, I learned to play on um, because I'd played bass before that and I was in, uh, going to some pretty weird places and I just wanted to do like finger picking kind of songwriting stuff. And I, you know, uh, I think that was just maybe what was popular at the time, like Elliot Smith and yeah, yeah, and, and the Nick Drake thing. And, and, um, uh, and I, I, you know, I like Bell and Sebastian and, um, 
you know, I'll, I'll kind of, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty like typical sad boy indie yeah. kind of stuff. I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally into that stuff too. And I loved like Arab Strap and yeah, most of it was okay. kind of a bummer. Of course, like I think some of Bell and Sebastian was pretty poppy and up, but a lot of the other stuff I was listening to was very like dreary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not really sure culturally why that happened. And there was all the other stuff as well. I mean, I got really excited. There was that Granddaddy record, The Software yeah. Slump. Oh, yeah, that changed my life, that one. Yeah, that was a big I deal. I love that record. And there was um, Super Furry Animals. Yeah. I remember, I remember I went to see Granddaddy and Super Furry Animals play when I was... I went to... I did an exchange to um to a university in upstate new york yeah right and um because i wanted to do video and sound art and i couldn't do those at the university i was at in sydney and um and so i i made plans to to go there and i thought that it was it said it was a two hour train ride to the city and so it was and you know th- the internet was a thing, but it didn't r- run our lives at that point, and so I, I didn't do full background check, and it was actually two hours to Rochester or Buffalo, but it was like eight hours on a Greyhound to New York City. Oh um, no! Yeah, so I, I kind of <laughs> got stuck out there, but all the other kids there were into um, that were doing the sound class, were into like microphones, and the K Records scene, and so we had like a modular synthesizer there. Oh wow! I would have to do stuff on it, um, as like assignments. But mainly, everyone would just like write songs on acoustic guitar and then just put some drones underneath it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you learn how? Did you learn Signal Path from the modular synth? Yeah, yeah. I played around. That's cool. With that. um, we also there was a video modular synthesizer as well, um, which was super cool. So we that is know, cool. could combine. We'd be running both those things at the same time. Uh, I guess it opened my mind to, or opened up my mind, but it just opened the door to that American, like, indie underground music culture. How do you feel about listening to stuff that you did back then now? Like that, you know, if you think yeah. about your first or second album, even. Well, the first album was very much me trying, you know, experimenting with Tony, who was the guy that produced it with me. He worked in the record store across the road from my uni, which is how I met him. I guess, yeah, I was inspired trying to make these sort of acoustic, electric, um, you know, drum samples and loops. And, you know, it, it was pretty, it was a playful thing, but it it sounds pretty lightweight to me now. It sounds like yeah. people not n- knowing how to do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lovely innocence about that, though. Yeah, and I th- that's a really nice place to start because we didn't know how to do stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's an accurate portrayal of that yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah. I um, It's funny, I was listening to, I've been listening to your records a lot and um, the last two records in particular, when I listen to it, I feel like German people would really love it. And I don't, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I feel like it's got like, it doesn't have a Germanness about it, but I feel like it has like a real accessibility to the culture that I come from 
Um, mm. And I know that, you know, like people like Adam Green are really massive in Germany. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And it just has like a similar, it has like a similar aesthetic. And the, some of the melodies are um, really catchy in the way that reminds me of childhood. German people have been kind of responsive to my music. I remember a uh, radio station Berlin was one of the first uh, first places outside of Sydney to, to get into Hertzville. Uh, and I have quite a lot of um, people write to me from Germany. Um, well, there and, you go. And I've had requests, yeah, to go and, and do stuff there. I never really, uh, I haven't done a lot of shows there, but I, I would like to. There's a guy that I've been getting into lately called um, Momus. Do you know? Yeah. Momus. Yeah. I think he's he's um, based out of Berlin, but he's not German. But I think he's probably predominantly popular in Germany. Yeah, that's funny. The stuff that that goes really big in Germany, but I yeah. I always think it has like a certain um, a certain catchiness because the Germans the Germans don't like stuff that's not. Uh, that's a that's a bit weird in my experience. Oh, you think they like it straight? I think they like it to be catchy and with an edge. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the other thing is outside of like electronic music and 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 re- like super minimal cool techno stuff. I think like Germans have pretty terrible taste in rock music, don't they? Yeah, like the Scorpions is the first yeah. thing I think of. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> or Hasselhoff. Uh, <laughs> Hasselhoff. I think John Farnham was quite big in Germany. Was he? I don't yeah. remember. <laughs> dire Straits are huge. In Germany, really? Yeah. But I actually, I really like Dire Straits. First Dire Straits record um, is kind of up there with Marky Moon for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they're, kinda, yeah. they're like the English television. Yeah. <laughs> they just, you know, kept going. Imagine if television kept going until they made their brothers in arms i know well you know we can wait and see if it happens <laughs> are they all dead actually no um no tom verlaine's still alive tom verlaine's alive yeah the only one that died was richard lloyd um the the second guitar player but tom verlaine he was never gonna be mark Knopfler. no as much as he maybe wanted to be <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You've just done a bunch of touring in the last few years. Um, how much of that was overseas? I did a lot of touring overseas, predominantly overseas. I didn't really tour Australia very much. Just that one tour with the Killers? Yeah. <laughs> it's pr- it's hard for me to get off the East Coast in Australia. Um, yeah. I mean, I did the Killers tour, but um, before that, I saw you at Laneway. Yeah. I was there with Alex Cameron and the touring thing for me, I'd been going back and forth to America to do work, but I hadn't been doing that many shows there. And um, I got asked to play bass with Wise Blood when she came out um, to Australia because she had to put a band together and I loved her record and so I wanted to play bass. And... So I did, it was only like four shows or something here. And then she was like, well, do you want to come to Europe in a couple of months and, you know, um, play bass and, and open the shows? So I was like, yep, 
I would love to do that. Yeah. Um, And so I did that for a bit and then I just, uh, because I was over there, I just kept doing more shows and then um, Alex Cameron was over there touring and he was like, well, do you want to come on these shows? And he was sort of transitioning between the jumping the shark and the force witness thing. Yeah. And um, so I'd get up and do maybe like one or two songs with him at the shows there and after I'd opened. And um, and then he was like, oh, you should come to America and, and open the shows there for us. And then he was like, oh, we maybe you want to get up and play guitar with us too. So I got up and then eventually I just sort of um, ended up doing the whole set with him. So then I was touring again, like doing two sets a night, uh, opening and then playing in the band. Which it gets pretty grueling, and that was yeah. predominantly what I've what I've done for the last couple of years. And I I did go on tour because no one wanted to put out the last record, so I was like, I'm not going to sit at home and just and and beat myself up about it. Um, I'll just get out there and and go and play it. Yeah, um, and then how did you find someone to put it out? Were you sort of giving it to people around and? Yeah, I mean, I you know. I've I've been doing it for a while, so yeah. I know a few people that have record labels and stuff, but the prospect of putting out a, a guy in his mid thirties fifth album after he hasn't really sold that many records um, isn't really something like a place where like a smart person would put their money necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people that believe in the music and believe that maybe there's something in important you still have something important to say um or something interesting to say at least i don't think no it's important um you know uh so it was just nick and katie um who have barely dressed records they um they decided that they really liked the record and were willing to give it a go and and so they were gracious enough to help us put it out here that's great. Um, and then uh, Terrible Records in America came on sort of later. I think they were umming and ahhing about it. Like, is this really something we want to do? And then I think they were like, oh, yeah, I mean, this, these songs are really good. So they they wanted to get on board. But it, it it's a tough situation out there. Um, yeah. In terms of doing the... the that business side of like album cycles and those kind of things you know do you think that you've lost some of the optimism that you had when you first started or do you think (laughs) it's getting stronger and uh i'm 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 less delusional i think you need to have a certain amount of delusion to do it um and to if if you're going to do it in that way and and put yourself out there in a really serious way like you know it costs serious money to go touring through europe and america um and i guess i've I've afforded myself that by you know playing with other bands and writing up other people's um bits and pieces i I did at certain points drop extreme amounts of cash touring a band around america um but now i don't know i'm i'm i like my songs i like performing them and i'm i'm not like kidding myself in the way that you do when you're in your early 20s and you're like 
I'm the new Bob Dylan. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> you yeah, see, you're realistic. You, you watch the you watch the wheel spin around a few times, and you like know how it works, and then you know your own yeah. little um, part of the paddock to to work on. And totally. And I got, I still have plans to um, try and make sense. I'm trying to make sense of my past a little right now. I think that's really important for me because of the way and I, that's why I was touring doing these solo shows where I play like two sets because I think I'd really at this point have confused anyone that was interested in me at different points in time so how how are you trying to make sense of the past I'm just trying to play all the songs at, at once <laughs> yeah <laughs> to show and like show some kind of lineage yeah and trying <laughs> trying to draw lines through my past to show that you know I haven't just done backflips and and um you know tried to be difficult or anything I've tried to you know, maintain a line but um I just wear different clothes to you know different <laughs> events uh, <laughs> but the songs are the same the songs you know I still feel that the if a song comes from an inspired place and and they they last and that's the most important part for me is just you know writing something that has uh has it takes on its own form and sort of is able to uh exist outside of yourself do you think about music as a career then or do you kind of think of it as more of a something that you'd need to do to get something out or to make sense of the world? I think at this point it's kind of my career. It um, feels gross to talk about it as your career though. I understand that with my music too, but... It's not gross if, if it is. I think it's... I've, you know, I, I, I think there's the business side of music has always been very important in terms of like rock and pop music and a lot of people do things for money sometimes that are really inspired and sometimes you know if you don't have that idea of it being a career sometimes you just really go up your own ass yeah and, uh, <laughs> and you know if you're making things solely for your own interest i think it's a beautiful thing but um, so there's something about economy and creativity that um, creates some weird connection. I, I don't know what it is. I haven't really <laughs> thought a lot about it. Um, <laughs> the idea of, you know, you selling yourself. I think I've always been selling myself and being aware that I'm selling myself. But I, I did go to art school and I... I I worked at doing design and stuff for a while, so I think that's always been part of my my thing. Yeah, you've got like a holistic approach about the whole project. It's an industry. Yeah. Um, this is my own tiny little industry now. <laughs> <laughs> How are you at the administrative stuff? A uh, terrible. terrible. <laughs> I I you know I've had other people helping me do yeah. those things um which is gives it the industry flavor you know when you're talking to someone who is a business manager that is trying to exploit you 
to make money for their business you understand that there's like other things at play you're like you know this guitar sound is really important to me but and <laughs> but also you know if it's going to jeopardize i mean no i've actually never made that decision <laughs> change the guitar sound for money but it's like um, i know what you're saying it's you know it's just part of it it's just uh, and it's com- sometimes it's fun I, I, in a in a filthy capitalist way you know if you do a good show and everyone comes and um buys tickets to the show and then they buy t-shirts and you do a, a, a you know a great show and you play your work and you get paid for it that's a great exchange and everyone's happy um, absolutely that's that's a good feeling that's the that's the live in the dream <laughs> doesn't happen that much <laughs> Do you think you've ever made decisions with the wrong goal in mind? Uh, I've done a couple of things that I felt were like uninspired. I had a couple of songs that I pursued because maybe I felt like um, people would like them. Yeah. Even though I didn't maybe like it as much or maybe I knew it was kind of not a great song. And ultimately, the people didn't like those songs anyway. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I'm always people know when I'm lying. I think some people get by on lies, and for some reason, just because of my who I am and my voice and my scale, it's like I could never shoplift. Like I'm not <laughs> good at, at um, being at, stealth. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like I'm the guy that is always like sort of picked out, like that guy did it you're like yeah. what <laughs> what is it about you that makes people go that guy did it <laughs> I maybe I d- i'm just uh maybe i'm guilty i look maybe i just look guilty you've got like resting guilt face resting guilt face yeah <laughs> and you're also very very tall so maybe that you stand out for that reason too and people s- <laughs> people see me coming and they remember me so i'm just very bad at being stealth yeah um, and some people know when I'm lying so it just doesn't work for me to, to be dishonest in my art or um, my music because that makes sense so I, I did it a couple of times not proud of it um, and ultimately there's you know they're just songs that I just never revisited yeah have you ever written a love song I've written lots of love songs are they always to your partner? Uh, or just to the uh, world, to different <laughs> things? Are they to people? <laughs> I don't know. I've I've written a few love songs that were like to people that were quite specific. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I find that most, a lot of my songs are, are, are probably really negative. Often, I mean, I mean, you know, bad situation and I'm um, kind of beating myself up about it well maybe that comes from listening to you know that kind of music when you were younger that there's a certain kind of comfort in that that tonally yeah I don't know whether I um, am pointing out the miseries it's a just describing my situation or imagining someone 
in their situation and describing their pain and anguish sometimes i do that yeah um i don't know this is like this song susan on the last record it's a beautiful song thank you <laughs> it's uh, well it's like it's romantic and and it's yeah. not and i thought of it as a very kind of uh it kind of just it came out of a, a story a situation but completely dramatized as well it came from like lots of different things put together and um and it uh it describes an incredibly bleak scenario um but people find it uplifting and people find it romantic and people you know like to dance to it yeah and <laughs> they like you know they see it as an expression of of love and i guess there's that idea as a songwriter that you kind of can take these really bizarre scenarios and and, and twist them into something that people uh you know glorifies them and and makes them into a, a better thing i i i um and and that comes from the whole idea of writing like literate music. I guess it's like a Lou Reed thing, where you, you know he wanted to make rock music for adults. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I guess in that way, I, I I was never comfortable when I started, um, because I never felt like I was what I was doing was fun. You know, I, maybe it's ha how you define fun for yourself. And this is something I struggle with all the time, and especially in terms of the live show, because the content of the songs is not necessarily fun. And people would normally go to a rock show because, you know, it's a, a f they're selling the idea of freedom and this sense of excitement and, and the idea of losing yourself in, in um, the music or, whatever and I, I never really had that relationship with rock music I think and so because I always came at it from a songwriting perspective and the song like the songwriters that I liked were always coming from this kind of twisted um, twisted uncomfortable place describing the uh, you know these kind of shady situations like I remember one of the first uh smog records i really loved was um the doctor came at dawn yeah and there's a song on that called all your woman things and he's sort of just describing his girlfriend's bedroom or um but th it's also sort of insinuating that maybe he's murdered her or there's a other song you moved in to my hotel um could have done better but oh well <laughs> 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 you know I, they they're the things that I like and I like sad I like really sad um not really I mean I like movies that are about interesting scenarios that's I'd, I'd yeah. say uh, um and I don't watch a lot of like crappy rom-coms I don't know like when I was a kid, I had a friend and we used to go to the video shop and we'd always pick out just like weird things that we'd never heard of. 
and 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 you know we didn't just go to the new release section and 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 get the latest blockbusters we were like searching for like bizarre stuff what's the standout do you have a standout movie from back then that was like blew your mind as a kid uh i remember watching deer hunter as a kid oh yeah like really way too young (laughs) to (laughs) but yeah i mean i remember watching bad boy bubby and oh yeah um these kind of like you know pretty distressing um situations yeah and um maybe that's just how my mind was trained to 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 enjoy things um yeah you're getting out of your own comfort zone kind of when you're watching these things or when you're listening to those kinds of songs yeah and you're finding emotion and and you're finding pleasure and 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 in different kind of different triggers yeah um which and it doesn't happen a lot in music you know there's you have to search pretty deep to to find songwriters that I'm really responding to. I was listening to your album the other day and I think Merciful Reply was a song that really like jumped out at me and it's the last song on the record. Yeah. But I think the lyrics were really interesting but also I think I was the way that the synth sounds <laughs> mixed with your voice in that was a really special uh, I know I mentioned this before we started the interview, but uh, I'm a massive Vangelis fan. And I was thinking, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if there was, like, a Vangelis-sounding album with your voice over it? That's yeah. kind of what that song... <laughs> yeah, well, that that, I mean, that's was. kind of... I guess I was going for that. It's like a... That's a song I, I wrote because I was doing the soundtrack for this horror show. Oh, and, right. Um, and there was a scene... It was a, I guess it was a skit because it was like a comedy horror show and um, it was called Repairing the Wife and um, this guy was, his, his wife was terminally ill with cancer and he, as she was dying, he was going around the neighborhood murdering young women and Whoa. stealing parts of their body to replace the failing parts of his wife and... Um, that was a melody that I wrote for their scene. <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> yeah. See, I mean, I didn't, I didn't make that up, but like these things come to me. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then I guess I, I, I had the melody for a while, and I just, I just, and that was a song. I mean, the words are very simple, and I wrote it kind of like a jazz standard. Um, and I did think, you know, it would be great to do like a um, Frank Sinatra style croonery ballad with in, you know, Blade Runner-ish territory. Yeah, works so well. I think you yeah. need to do more songs like that. Well, it's funny that you say that because <laughs> I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's awesome. How do, you, how do you go about playing, especially the last album, um, when you play live, and I suppose you've been doing a lot of touring solo, mm. do you play it all to backing track? Yeah, I started doing backing track stuff. Do you play over backing tracks or do you just sing over them? Well, I I thought initially um, that I would never do backing tracks. Yeah. And then I started doing a few songs where I, because I would play guitar and then I'd put the guitar down and I'd, just sing a couple of songs like karaoke with the backing track 
and then I um slowly worn down. I was like, the last thing I'm ever going to do is play guitar over a backing track because that is just <laughs> a disgusting thing to do. Um, <laughs> and I had to do like an in-store performance when the record came out. And I was yeah. like, I can't play the, use the band and I'm not, I can't just play the songs on guitar. So I'll just try it with the backing tracks. Um, and then I did that and I was like, oh, it worked pretty well. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll keep doing that. And <laughs> Why were you so put off by it in the first oh, place? It just feels like a really lame, cheap ass thing to do. It feels like, you know, the guy that plays from um you know, like ten PM to midnight at Judgment Bar. Yeah. Like, um, or the <laughs> the courthouse bar. Tracks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the way that I got I I had bad experiences with it before because I think when I put Hertzville out, I I went to America to do some solo shows and I was going to play guitar over the backing tracks, but the backing tracks were all wrong because there was too much mm. live instrumentation in them. Yeah. Whereas the backing tracks I'm using now are actually the demos for the record, and they're okay. all they're all MIDI, so there's no air in the recordings at all, and they sound terrible in headphones, but sound great through a PA speaker. And you feel more comfortable playing to backing tracks now? You've realised it's not as bad as you first thought it was? Uh, well, I have on and off over the last few years been doing stuff with backing tracks at different degrees and different samples and stuff because a lot of the songs often have this like one element that is completely unplayable and is often like the spine of the song. So yeah. if we're going to have any attempt at performing the music live, you kind of have to use something artificial. Um, but I just, I, I just didn't. Just the aesthetic of playing guitar over a backing track just felt entirely like amateurish. Um, yeah, I have the same thing because I've been. I'm just actually about to go to soundtrack for a show I'm playing tonight, and mm. I'm playing guitar. So never, and uh, you know, normally I always have keyboard around, but I've decided to do a guitar and backing track show, <laughs> oh, wow. and it's a real like. I I struggle with it too because I I think is it lame to do it is it, um, you know is it I don't know is it acoustically a mistake? I don't, <laughs> it depends on how you do it in your own way. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's just so rigid and the art of the idea of live music, you know, a performing music. You've already lost that element. Because yeah. people know there's a track happening, so sure. you have to do other things or to um to bring the idea of performance. I don't know. Some there's there's different ways to approach it. I've seen people stand behind their laptop and play guitar. Yeah, and I I find that pretty offensive. Yep. Um, <laughs> Why is that? It's not offensive. <laughs> but, in some, but in some ways, it's kind of more dignified than pretending like there's no backing track and that you're just yeah. like rocking out with this, you know, <laughs> enormous amount of like electronic drums coming through the PA. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a controller that I like hold like a, um, you know, like a. It's about as big as an iPad or something. A bit smaller. Yeah. And then I like that just has like MIDI controllers on it and okay. then I can trigger samples live and sing over them. Oh, well that's cool. But and then for a while though I tried to use one of those soft steps, you know, where you can trigger samples 
with your foot. Oh yeah. Um, and I was just like triggering them from Ableton. Yeah. Um, and that became I realized that I'm not a very coordinated person with my feet and hands at the same time. <laughs> yeah. It's like really hard to get the samples in time because I would like trigger backing vocals or something and. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was kind of a disaster. Yeah, there's. I guess there's so many different ways to approach it. I think, um, you know, I think Kieran is kind of pretty good with his backing tracks because he he loads them in a pedal and he has all these pedals and there's there's quite. It's like a magic trick. Yeah. Um, and then there's you know people that do the, like the looping thing, which I I find pretty revolting. Yeah, um, I'm not into that either. Not into the loop. Uh, I think there's something honest about just playing the, the backing track, but then you, you got to make sure the song's pretty good. Um, generally, there's like I, there's, I spend so much time um, performing the vocals of the song that it's hard to focus on doing anything else. I think you know the most I can really do is like tread on a distortion pedal to take a like guitar solo. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not very good at like moving around and thinking about all the different things that you got to do in terms of a solo performance. I, I just, I just want to sing the song and and make sure that I'm communicating uh, that because if that doesn't happen, then you know, what's the point? Exactly. But it's an interesting thing, and it you know, I guess it's um, when you're playing solo, you have to think about that stuff a lot more these days now that the t we have the technology yeah you know? well i think there's also just you know the idea of troubadour or like being a songwriter you know is uh, there's this guy sean nicholas savage do you know him no i don't he's a uh i think he lives he's a canadian guy he's from the same town as uh as mac demarco i think edmonton okay yeah um but they're all part of that like Grimes scene uh, in um, but in Sean Nicholas Savage, he's a guy that writes kind of amazing pop songs, and he's just entirely focused on his vocal performance. And his vocal performance can be quite like strange sounding and pretty loose, but he's got so much like charisma that he can just like play his backing track and sing and you just don't really no one really worries that there's nothing else going on and i think people have accept, accepted now that songwriters might just show up and and sing and <laughs> they don't have to like you know play a few like four chords on a guitar i mean i saw um blasco play a couple of days ago and mm. she sang some songs just to backing track and yeah you, nobody even you know it was like because she had her voice is such a weapon yeah that it it just doesn't matter like it, yeah you know and i feel like you would be the same way because your voice is very striking you know yeah, you just really performing need the to song yeah i think Blas blasco solo is a, is a real thing i saw it yeah do that a couple of years ago and was not shocked but like impressed <laughs> Yeah, she's, she can really carry it for yeah. sure. Yeah. Hey, I want to ask you my last question, which is a question mm. I ask everyone. Yes. Can you tell me your worst or strangest show experience? Uh, 
strangest show experience um, was when a long time ago when the Love Is Gone record came out, um, which was my second record. Um, it got picked up on the radio, um, kind of without me really wanting it to, and I, I didn't expect uh, expect anyone to be that interested in it. And <laughs> and then we got offered a bunch of different things, and we ended up going to play Splendor in the Grass, and um, and also performing that year was uh, You Am I and Tim Rogers from You, you Am I knew of me because my name is also Tim Rogers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I what think what are the An- chances? <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think Andy um, Kent, who's the bass player from You Am I, who's also um, Tim's manager, and he worked at Love Police, and he had my name in his phone as tim rogers as well he used to call me um without wanting to um (laughs) pretty frequently i don't i kind of remember if i'd met tim before i don't think i had but he just knew of me because i had the same name sure um he asked me if i would get up with you or my at splendor in the grass and sing a song with him as as the real Tim Rogers. <laughs> and um, and so I was like pretty excited. Yeah. Uh, because I, I was a fan. I'm a fan. Of course, yeah. <laughs> and um, so we didn't actually, didn't get a rehearsal or anything. And, uh, and I'm only, you know, I'm only getting asked to do the show because I'm Tim Rogers as well. It's not, I don't think it's necessarily because there's a great love for my music or that my voice is going to work well. Um, and so we get up on stage and I, I was pretty young, pretty inexperienced, didn't learn the, the words, didn't, I shouldn't known the words. It was one of those things where you kind of know the words. Yeah. I was going to sing Heavy Heart. Oh, um, so good. And uh, he's like, yeah, we're going to do it in like a, in like like harvest moon we're not going to okay. do it in the same um same feel as on the record so um they do it in this kind of shuffly sort of thing right and um i came in like a half a beat late and then i think i <laughs> i um and then i performed like the song i thought that tim was going to sing as well so i thought we'd be sort of trading verses but he yeah. just wanted me to sing the whole thing oh god um, and so I came in half a beat late and I just kind of slowly kept going further and further out of time, <laughs> like not knowing where the one was and not knowing the phrasing. And so the whole crowd knows the song a lot better than I do. And I was holding the lyrics in my hand, but also holding a, a bouquet of flowers to try and conceal the fact that I was holding <laughs> the lyrics. That's a um, smart idea. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone bought it. Um <laughs> And uh, I, I, I think I butchered it, but I, you know, Tim was very gracious and, and didn't oh. tell me that. And then afterwards, I got to hang backstage with Tim, and, and then it was just a, a real. Uh, I think um, Phil Jamison was there, and and Bernard Fanning. So it was just me and, and the and nineties big dogs. <laughs> um, 
That's uh, great. Um, That's a good ending to a troublesome <laughs> story. <laughs> and it showed me that, you know, the show's forgotten as soon as it's happened. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm glad there's no recording of that show. Um, <laughs> I bet it's on YouTube me. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> People probably were filming and they probably turned their cameras off while I, when I came on. <laughs> But Tim also had, had toyed with the idea at that point, even though I performed so badly, he was like, we're going to do a record. And, and he's like, I don't want to sing anymore. We're, it's going to be like oh. the faces and we're going to get a new singer. And he's like, you're going to be the new singer. <laughs> oh, um, I hope that happens. Yeah. I, I'm but but also that, that they somehow just start playing CS 80s and make a Van <laughs> Van Gellis <laughs> Jack yeah. Ladder record. Yeah, the new UMI <laughs> record is um is a purely orchest orchestral synth album with me singing. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's like my dream. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for talking to me, Tim. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Sam.